I'm Dr. Marcus Jones of the Department of History at the U.S. Naval Academy, and I'm here today with Tyler Pitroff, soon to be Dr. Tyler Pitroff, who uh, has spent the last 10 years working toward first a master's degree and then a Ph.D. in history, uh, recently completed at the University of Maryland College Park under the direction of John Sumita. In that time, he's been employed by the National Archives and Records Administration and the United States Army, for whom he currently works as an archivist. Just this past March, he successfully defended his dissertation, which is titled, the fascinating title of Too Far on a Whim to Walk Back on a Hunch, a quotation from a key document that features in the dissertation, The U.S. Navy and High Steam Technology from 1930 to 1945. Uh, this very interesting study seeks to assess the early impact of what's called high steam propulsion technology on the U.S. Navy. In doing that, it delves into the technical records of the Navy's bureau system, those of the general board, uh, the chief of naval operations, and down to the level of ship designers and builders. In light of what he puts together, Tyler goes on to argue in the dissertation that while high steam developments improved the operational ranges of Navy warships, the system failed to achieve the lofty endurance numbers claimed during its development by its proponents and in subsequent scholarship in the post-war period as well. This was largely due, as he sees it, to faulty assumptions made about the nature of modern operational environments and points out that the improvements that were obtained came at the cost of substantial production and training problems, all of which we'll uh, have a chance to hear him talk about here. That's the study thesis or argument in a nutshell. Uh, Tyler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Just by way of background, let me ask how you came to this fascinating topic. What led you to the unique combination of records that, that, you've, that you've taken advantage of to, uh, to complete it? Well, back in uh, late 2010, early 2011, when I was really just getting into my master's studies, I spoke at length with uh, Dr. Sumita, who is my advisor for both programs, and he suggested A, that I pursue the degree by thesis option rather than degree by examination because he felt, with, as you know now, some justification that it would be, have more utility in the future for me, um, but also because he had a few suggestions as to what I might start looking into subject-wise. And at the time, he suggested a number of things, one of them being uh, type, the type of fuel used by the U.S. Navy or uh, how the U.S. Navy achieved its, its in, uh, high endurance, which at the time was fairly well known from scholarship. So that doesn't sound particularly exciting, and I, I wasn't particularly excited by it at the time. But uh, pretty much everything he suggested to me, my initial step in my thesis research was to go to the Navy Department Library at the NHHC at the Navy Yard in, in D.C., look into some of the administrative history manuscripts that they hold in, in the uh, rare book room there. And the very first one I looked at was the Administrative History of the Bureau of Ships in World War II. And in the in the introduction of that manuscript, uh, something like page 8 to page 9, there was a paragraph pertaining to why the Bureau of Ships came to be when it did. I, I unfortunately don't have the wording in front of me precisely, but it was very, very disparaging of the process that had led to the propulsion system used during World War II, which ran completely contrary to everything I had just talked to Dr. Sumita about 
Uh, so I was very, I was very intrigued, and it, it wasn't very specific about what exactly the problem was, other than repeatedly referencing the fact that it was that the high steam system was somehow a problem. I went to the National Archives after. So you don't recall that it. You don't recall that it pointed to this, some of the specific factors that show up in your study. It was it just that first clue that led you to think yeah. that perhaps there's a disparity between our understanding of it and right. and the way it might have operated. Okay. Right, and and the language made it sound more of a, a fielding issue, getting it in, getting it into the field. So that's what actually led me first to investigate um, uh, production records in the Bureau of Ships. Uh, so I went to the National Archives. About two weeks after that, I think, in College Park, fairly quickly in poking my nose into the records of destroyers in particular within the Bureau of Ships, started finding these lists of de- ships delayed due to uh, waiting for their turbines and gears. Naturally, that, that you know, seemed a little bit off <laughs> since I had never heard anything about that either. When you, when you took this back to your dissertation advisor, these preliminary indications of an interesting problem, uh, what was his response? Uh, he sort of knitted his eyebrows at me and said, well, that's odd, <laughs> was his immediate <laughs> response. But, you know, that, so I just pursued that thread for my master's thesis and ended up, uh, on polling at that, found out a whole lot about what a, what a, uh, a domino effect adopting high steam had had on just pr- the production of warships, particularly destroyers during World War II. So that's what I, uh, I should say prior to and during World War II. So that's Why are destroyers? There's another type of ship that in, in the dissertation is of particular particular salience for, uh, for your argument, but why are destroyers here so so fundamental? Well, at the time, uh, it was because, for the master's thesis, it was the only thing that was very, very evident because larger ships were given priority when they were ready for their engines. Production was generally shifted to make sure that everything for those fewer numbers of larger ships was ready on time. For, wow. the, for the dissertation, when I pursued this further uh, and started looking at, at the uh, production issues in a larger perspective, I realized that this is a particular problem for destroyers and was causing a particular amount of panic in the Bureau of Ships at the time. Or maybe not panic, per se, but perhaps I should say dis- uh, extreme distress. <laughs> the reason for that is because by World War II's beginning, destroyers had become absolutely essential to the operation of the U.S. fleet, no matter what they were trying to do. You always had to have destroyers <coughs> with, with any task force that wanted to do anything. If you did not, you were running a rather serious risk at that time of uh, being caught out by submarines or later on aircraft or anything that could sneak up on you because simply because larger ships couldn't defend themselves without a screen uh, from surprise attacks. So effectively, the delay of these destroyers didn't necessarily ruin the United States in World War II, as we know, since the United States won. But what it did was severely handicapped the operational tempo that the U.S. Navy was able to pursue in the Pacific. That's the key. Yes. So if you have had more destroyers available earlier, you could have conducted more si- more or more simultaneous operations than were otherwise possible, which is the major problem or major situation that I've stumbled upon my dissertation. So to talk a little bit about what high steam technology in this case, what high steam propulsion is or what what advantage it was thought to confer, because clearly it, it, it's to be distinguished from other ways of pushing ships to the Right, and uh, high steam is a, a shorthand term, I should say, before I say anything else, for uh, high temperature, high pressure steam. And 
that can mean many things, uh, and it means a very different thing today than it meant in 1937. But in the context we're discussing, it's in opposition to saturated steam, which is at or near the uh, traditional boiling point of steam, somewhere in the neighborhood of 212 to um, uh, 400 degrees, depending on the pressure in use in naval boilers at the uh, time. The steam that we're discussing with high steam, rather than being something around you know 200 psi, 400 degrees, had been raised to in the U.S. Navy by World War II, 600 psi and 850 degrees, which is uh, a rather substantial increase. That seems um, like a lot. Yes. Uh, it, again, it doesn't seem like a lot in today's context when we use much, much higher pressure for certain things. But, but at the time, rather, uh, this was a very rapid scale up from what had been in use prior. Where, where uh, was it coming from as a technology, and uh, why, why was it so much more difficult or complicated to to implement or to use on a ship? Well, a lot of the history of steam power is very cross-topical, maybe I should say. Uh, a lot of employments of steam ashore, such as power plants specifically, came to exchange developments with uh, developments at sea. So you can see this throughout the 19th century and throughout the first half of the 20th century, particularly around the, uh, 1900 is when it's probably at its most intense. High steam had really... Hit, start, started to hit its stride ashore in the period following the First World War in power plants, uh, as power plants were pursuing economies of scale, or beginning to unify into regional grids and pursue economies of scale. So the larger, more uh, capable, uh, centralized power plant was becoming essential to that system. And in pursuit of the most power at uh, most consistent loads and the most uh, reliability, these power plants ended up pursuing higher and higher pressures and temperatures. This naturally intrigued first um, uh, commercial marine shipping as a possibility for increasing economy on their end, and then eventually in turn intrigued uh, military planners for the possible applications there. The problem with moving that, particularly from uh, merchant shipping to military shipping, is whereas merchant shipping is very, very good at maintaining a very consistent and moderate speed most of the time from origin to destination, that usually is not the case with military shipping. You're zigzagging, you're changing speeds, sometimes very, very rapidly, and the, there's always the possibility of battle damage, there is always the possibility of sailing in less than ideal conditions, you might go very long time between significant maintenance layups, there are a lot, lot, lot more intense demands on a military propulsion system than on a commercial propulsion system. I, I have to ask at this point, do you, did you have a background originally in engineering? or how, how is it that you came, or have you had to become something of an expert in, in steam propulsion technology? I, I've had to largely teach myself. <laughs> and the, uh, the aid of, I've had the aid, thankfully, of uh, a lot of textbooks that I've managed to get a hold of from throughout this entire period, and I've actually got a couple of them sitting in front of me in case I needed examples today. Um, one of which actually is... Um, the Navy's own engineering and damage control, which I cite in the, in the uh, dissertation, which is only about 250 pages. It's supposed to be basically, you know, the knockdown, dirty, gritty, here are the essentials for what you need to know for how the system operates in case something goes horrifically wrong with it when it gets shot. Um, and then I also have the uh, U.S. Naval Institute's Naval Machinery textbook, actually, for, actually from 1941. And although that one was already out of date at that point, um, it was supposed to be a professional reference that uh, past engineers would use 
to improve themselves uh, as part of their continuing education. So it's actually quite detailed on the thermodynamics involved in the propulsion system, the construction methods and all things like that. It was very, very helpful while I was writing the dissertation. To go back to this, this process of translating high steam, what, what by that point had become, uh, if not a standard, at least uh, a, a well-known way of, of generating, generating power from steam. You, you mentioned briefly the Navy's initial interest in it. Um, when did that process really start to accelerate in the Navy, um, and how does who became Admiral Harold Bowen factor into it? A lot of the people listening are probably aware of the existence of the naval treaty system in the uh, interwar period, uh, which limited the numbers and tonnages of warships that were permitted to be built. Uh, that put a stop to a naval arms race that immediately followed the end of the First World War. So throughout the 1920s, the United States Navy due to a combination of that and general apathy on the part of the U.S. public and Congress, was not really building very many warships. In, in most years, it did not build any at all, in fact. So in 1930, we were reaching the point where a lot of the ships in a lot of the navies around the world were beginning to start to show their age. Uh, warships can last quite a while in a lot of circumstances in the modern era, but things wear out and a better technology comes along. And so in 1930, when the U.S.'s newest destroyer class was the uh, the various derivatives of the Clemsons, which had been designed prior to and during the First World War, they were getting to the point where they were old enough that there was justification to begin replacing them with newer units. In the efforts to design a repla- uh, the first replacement class that had been built since these classes were completed in uh around 1920, the Bureau of Engineering, which at the time was responsible basically for all things propulsion, uh, both in the design phase and maintenance phase of uh, U.S. Navy warships, became aware of, or probably had been consistently aware of, but started to become increasingly aware of uh, developments in high steam and power plants and its early adoption in merchant shipping, particularly by uh, the U.S. Naval designer, uh, William Francis Gibbs. In trying to uh, come up with a ship that fit the demands perceived by the U.S. war planning of the interwar period and U.S. naval exercises, the uh, the, free, the fleet problems of the 20s and, and 30s, uh, there was a perceived need for increased operational range, particularly on the part of U.S. Navy destroyers. So, I think it might be I think it might be worthwhile for a moment to digress into those that that range requirement. Um, mm-hmm. Talk if you would. Um, at least for a couple of minutes, about what the U.S. Navy anticipated uh, by way of a future war in the Pacific and why that made range, maximization of range in its units so fundamental. There really wasn't any secret throughout the interwar period that one of the primary potential antagonists uh, of the United States or was the Empire of Japan, which had its own interests and designs on uh, its immediate surroundings in the in the Pacific. And unfortunately for the United States, uh, some of those interests uh, involved either um, ar- the areas around or the Philippine Islands themselves, uh, which naturally the United States was not particularly amenable to. So there was a general effort throughout the first uh, 40 years of the 20th century to uh, plan on the part of the United States for pretty much any conceivable conflict that the Navy might find itself involved in. But the probably the most thorough planning was 
even more plan orange which was a potential war against the empire of japan uh this was the primary focus of many of the fleet problems that were carried out uh, in the interwar period and as a result there were a lot of things uh, that were discussed or considered in war plan orange that had to be tried in these fleet problems to see if they would be feasible or if there was there were shortcomings uh, that the navy would have to overcome in order to do what what planners felt needed to be done in the event of a war so i won't go too far into absolutely everything that was tested although one of the oh, interesting no, things not. Was, one of the interesting things that was uh, common uh, which i believe they did multiple times was uh, uh, figuring out how to use the U.S. Navy's early aircraft carriers to attack land-based targets, particularly how an attack might be carried out on the Panama Canal, for example. But the carriers posed a particular, a particularly, a particularly magnified problem that had already been perceived in the escort of slower, larger uh, warships, such, or slower other battleship, uh, warships such as battleships, right. which was carriers tended to cruise much more quickly. Then uh, their average speeds were much higher than other warships that required escorts, uh, naturally because they had to repeatedly turn into the maneuver to turn into the wind and move at high speed to launch their aircraft. And uh, the speed requirements only increased as aircraft got larger and heavier throughout the interwar period. In order to escort these ships, then, the uh, existing U.S. Navy destroyers were having to use larger and larger quantities of their fuel at high speed to maintain screens around these carriers. The nature of fuel consumption, particularly with turbines, is exponential. So the higher you, the higher rate of speed at which you're sailing, the significantly higher your rate of fuel consumption grows. So we're talking on the neighborhood of, um, we're talking on the neighborhood of, uh, if we're cruising at 12 knots, you know, you might be able to achieve with a destroyer something in the neighborhood of, and th this isn't a real number, this is just an example, something in the neighborhood of 6,000 nautical miles at 12 knots for maximum endurance. If you are instead having to cruise at 28 knots on average, because the carrier you are escorting is constantly maneuvering and launching aircraft, your range is probably going to be cut down to maybe a third of that, perhaps uh, even less. A lot of the fleet problem debriefings that are uh, readily accessible in a lot of published works today, particularly uh, Albert Nofi's work, which is a fantastic review of all of the fleet problems, which uh, that's titled To Train the Fleet for War, I believe. Most of these debriefings started with uh, a line that was something like this. Began exercise at 1800 by sailing west at 25 knots. At 2100 hours, stopped to refuel destroyers. <laughs> uh, so the constant concern became keeping destroyers topped off uh, in case unexpected maneuvering would be required because you didn't want to be caught having to leave your destroyers behind simply because they could not, they, they did not have the endurance to keep up with you any longer. You um, mentioned you mentioned the turbine. Um, yes. Not to be overly elementary in how we unpack all of this, but but for the sake of interested naval historical enthusiasts who might not have a clear understanding of the relationship between a steam propulsion plant, as a steam power plant, generation plant, and a turbine, what's a turbine, and why does it matter so much for understanding this issue, particularly the relationship between turbines, oh, a cruising turbine and, and, and turbines used for different kinds of things. That gets into what the United States high steam system actually was. It's a little bit different than anything, well, a lot different than anything comparable yeah. in other, na other nations at the time, which is part of what has historically set it apart. High steam, while it refers to the elevated temperature and pressure that we discussed earlier, is not just that. While that obviously would imply, you know, 
higher tolerances, uh, higher heat and pressure tolerances of the, of the materials involved in construction. Um, it also, in the case of the United States, is a reference to a system of uh, propulsion engineering, not just a basic increase of those uh, statistics. One of the most it, fascinating descriptions in your dissertation is precisely this. I'm it actually was, kind of surprised it, I managed to cut this down to one paragraph, too, to be honest with you, because it took, it, it, it it took about it was, five years to get it done. It really <laughs> stood out, actually, because it, for its clarity and its directness, I loved it. Unfortunately, the system itself, while it may sound a little bit simpler in that in this particular description that I'm about to read, is anything but when you start getting every when you look at it closer, it just exposes more and more minute detail that I've glossed over. The American high steam system was built around air encased water tube boilers and cross compound impulse turbines for each propeller shaft. What the cross compound means is that rather than a single turbine, which had been the case in previous uh, iterations of naval propulsion, you had multiple turbines that were uh, particularly designed for different pressure ranges in the in in the steam in use in the ship. So instead of one turbine that had to be absolutely enormous to take full advantage of decreasing pressure across its length, you could break it up and thereby uh, save a lot of space and also be able to make all the turbines a little bit smaller. The 650 PSI, 850 degree steam that the uh, boilers controlled type superheaters produce, which we can talk about in a little bit if you'd like, uh, was a substantial increase over, as I said, 300 PSI, 300 to 400 degree steam in use in the Navy's older designs. Ga ga uh, exhaust gases were vented past the water, being fed to the boiler in an economizer, preheating the liquid and making additional use of waste heat. All these turbines that we've just discussed were linked to their respective propeller shaft via complex double reduction gear, which was unique to the United States Navy at the time. In order to permit the optimum respective uh, rotational speeds for the turbines and propellers. Overall, the system represented a, uh, a pretty innovative solution to the range problem that we've just, or the endurance problem rather, that we've just discussed. Prior to its development, the only alternative that was considered, or, or alternatives, were uh, underway refueling or simply the building up of more refueling bases, which was a more common um, solution used by Great Britain, is probably the best example. Or at least it promised that. Yes. Uh, By the late 1930s, that promise had reached a crossroads. And at yeah. that crossroads stands your uh, the centerpiece document, I suppose, of, of, your, um, of your study. General Board 420-13. Right. Uh, if, if you would, could you unpack a little bit of the background to what that General Board report was about, who the major figures involved in sorting through these issues were and where it where it landed or didn't land i suppose in the end yeah the general board study which uh, you just referred to was a 1937 study by the general board of the navy which was a top advisory body uh, in the navy at the time the study came about because the rapid adoption the components of this high steam system by the bureau of engineering throughout the 1930s and successive uh, destroyer classes distressed uh, many other non-engineers, well, engineers and non-engineers in the U.S. Navy. Uh, this was because a lot of the ship's designs were being uh, finalized prior to the gathering of what was considered adequate test data for the previous ships uh, that had been constructed. So you were sort of coming up with these innovative you know, devices, and then before being able to prove that they actually worked, piling more on top of that in the next class. In 1937, this came to a head with the Somers-class destroyer leaders, uh, which represented a rather significant improvement uh, on uh, 
uh, all destroyers that had come before them at that point, uh, at least in the uh, calculations of the um, Bureau of uh, Engineering at the time. This had been somewhat of a public uh, amount or a disagreement within the Navy to the point where there were actually articles appearing about this in uh, newspapers in in 1937. So naturally, you know, something had to be done to fix this embarrassing problem and decide if the Navy was going in a good direction or if there was something that needed to be done to put a stop to uh, these maverick engineers, the Bureau of Engineering, that were just doing whatever they wanted. Hence the General Board hearing in 1937, which uh, is pretty unique in the activities of the General Board at the time, in particular because they really went out of their way to be as impartial as possible. They ran this almost like a Supreme Court hearing, uh, where they brought in someone else to uh, a, a, a disinterested third party to act as a judge advocate general, for lack of a better term. Went back and forth for some weeks between supporters of the Bureau of Engineering of high steam and opponents, which were a great number of opponents across a wide range of uh, organizations, but the particular ones we're interested in were at the uh, various shipyards, actually, that were being that had been traditionally contracted to build U.S. Navy warships, in particular the big three of Bethlehem Steel, um, New York Shipbuilding, and the third one is escaping me, I'm sorry. <laughs> Basically, the, the major shipyards and the Bureau of Engineering's intended compatriots in ship design at the Bureau of Construction and Repair, the Bureau of, uh, I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the, Bureau, the Bureau of Construction and Repair were, were not particularly pleased with how much displacement was being taken up uh, displacement of space was being taken up in these new destroyers des- destroyer designs with these engineering improvements. And so I put that in, in quotations from their perspective. So was that the uh, primary yeah, objection? They came up I with mean, you mentioned of... multiple stakeholders. Uh, that, that, uh, Newport yes. News is the third one. But, that, you know, that's Bethlehem, the third one. Thank you. Thank you. But, but yes. the, the shipbuilders had their own sort of objections to, to this yes. transition. What other kinds of opposition to the implementation of high steam did your I, research turn? I had I first mentioned the uh, the weight and, and space argument simply because that was a primary trigger for this hearing because a number of destroyers had actually failed their their stability tests their inclining tests just prior to this happening which is a very very dangerous situation and while the engineering situation was not the sole reason for that these these ships were overloaded with weapons and top heavy to begin with it was a contributing factor uh, mm-hmm. the shipyards though were jumping on this bandwagon the major shipyards were. Because they, for many, many years, back to the beginning of the 20th century, had been contracting uh, Parsons Limited, a uh, turbine manufacturer in Britain, for their engine, for their propulsion machinery. So, naturally, they were not too thrilled about suddenly being informed that uh, the, the low-pressure propulsion machinery they were being given by Parsons was not appropriate for these designs uh, that were being pushed by the Bureau of Engineering. and. They objected that in doing this, the Bureau of Engineering was giving an unfair advantage to smaller shipyards, which had always used American subcontractors for their propulsion machine. The other factor which had triggered this was the Bureau of Engineering, and I'll get to the individuals involved in just a second, had informed these shipyards in 1935 that the U.S. Navy was uh, prepared to enforce the Espionage Act uh, to force them to sever their licenses with Parsons. The Espionage Act meaning... The shipyards were to be were going to be considered to be sharing national secrets 
with Parsons because Parsons knew exactly how the machinery they were providing was designed, which it makes a reasonable amount of sense, but uh, it wasn't the original sure. purpose of the Espionage Act, of course. We live in an uh, age when, 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 when cyber-related issues and technologies and their relationship yes. to the Department of Defense are frequently described in similar terms. I, I, yes. when, I, when I read that in the dissertation, that really resonated. I thought, well, I can well imagine well, somebody complaining about switching equipment, for example, for, uh, for server yeah, Pat, Some, some things never countries. change. <laughs> so the the indi- individuals involved in this on the end of the uh, Bureau of Engineering initially were um, Rear Admiral Samuel Robinson, who was uh, the head of the Bureau of Engineering when the first new destroyer designs were being drawn up in 1930. But in uh, 1931, I'm sorry, 1935, his wow. understudy uh, at the time, the deputy chief, became the new chief of the Bureau of Engineering, and that was Rear Admiral Harold G. Bowen Sr. This guy was... Very intelligent, very driven, but also very stubborn would perhaps be the best description. He, he was he was an engineer by trade, as you would expect, as all uh, heads of the Bureau of Engineering were at that time. He had a master's in mechanical engineering from Columbia. He'd been an engineer in the Navy in various forms uh, ever since he joined very early in the 20th century. And he saw it as his mission to continue to push what, what Robinson had started. He thought Robinson you do was him absolutely a disservice. Right. He- Bowen is the author of one of my favorite books in U.S. naval history, which I read now in an entirely different light as a result of, <laughs> of your dissertation. But I'm no less enthralled by it every time I turn to it. He he, he is. I I don't. This is not to malign engineers out there. But he's one of those rare examples: technically proficient engineer, broadly experienced, a, a gifted administrator as well, mm-hmm. uh, and a senior naval officer who, who writes very well. And who took the time to put together yes. the, the title of his memoir, uh, Ships, no, no, Men, Men, Machinery, and Mossbacks. You had I it right the first time. Yeah, uh, Ships, I, I, Ships, Machinery, and Mossbacks, the Autobiography Ships, of a Naval Engineer. Book I commend to everybody listening. And it, it's also an incredible source for uh, his experience in uh, learning engineering in the Navy in the early 20th century. And Yes. It, it's yes, an excellent it's case. That, and it's funny. I mean, he, the guy writes kind of a bounce and a sparkle and a wit that you find rarely in, in, in books of this period. In that, I have to remark also in that book, uh, it really sounds like a fond recollection when he's describing his early career. Despite the, the mess that he frequently found himself yes. um, and the things he was, the impossible things he was expected to do with the broken down machinery <laughs> that he was assigned to, he, the way he comes at that is uh, kind of a delight, to be honest with you. You are absolutely right about it. He, but I, I think also his uh, autobiography, reading it now, really gives an excellent uh, insight into the, the way his mind worked and the way he came at problems. And in the case of running the Bureau of Engineering, he was very dedicated to trying to make the U.S. Navy what he saw as the pinnacle of engineering technology in the world. And in exactly. so doing, giving the U.S. Navy a significant advantage against any opponent it might come up against so his he he adopted this this push for high steam from robinson and really made it his own scholarship has remembered him ever since as uh, the father of the propulsion system that powered u.s navy warships in world war ii the trouble is he was so dedicated to getting this done so convinced of the rightness of what he was doing that he made quite a few enemies that's a big part of also what led to this general board hearing in 1937. To spoil a little bit of where we are headed, he got his way. The general board ruled, and we'll we'll discuss that in a second because we have to, but the general board ruled that 
they would not that it would not be wise to interfere with what his bureau was doing at the time. However, he lost his job very soon after that. <laughs> um, in 1939, the end of 1939, he uh, finished his term as the bureau of, or as the chief of the Bureau of Engineering and was actually replaced by his uh, eventually replaced by who he had replaced, uh, Admiral Robinson. His predecessor, yes. And due to the inability of his bureau to cooperate, this, this is the amalgamation. Yes, uh, due to the inability of his bureau to cooperate with the Bureau of Construction and Repair, they were amalgamated into the Bureau of Ships in 19, which makes a lot of sense in that you're um, centralizing all the design functions, save weapons, in doing that, but also means that you are demoting engineering concerns to overall planning concerns uh, at that or point. Or contextualizing Right, but then all but engineering matters a are a sub-division. Yes, yeah. well, yes, but all engineering matters at that point become a, a sub-concern of one of the many concerns of the Bureau of Ships rather than the primary. Bowen himself is then sent to the, uh, he becomes a director of the Naval Research Laboratory after that, but uh, again... And could be seen down the road as one of the forefathers of naval nuclear propulsion. Yes, absolutely. turns out to have kind of a a Phoenix-like second coming. But he's also very tied to, if I recall correctly, Frank Knox at this time. They are good terms. However, when, when Knox goes... Following World War II, he's and I should mention he's actually special assistant first to he becomes special assistant to the Secretary of the Navy from 44 to 47, which should tell you all you need to know about his relationship with the Secretary of the Navy at that time. However, after that, he only spends a year at what I believe eventually becomes the Naval Research La- uh, Institute, right? I believe he's at NRI Director That's Office it. of Research and Invention is what I have, which uh, is the office changes later. But then That's retires soon afterwards, um, because I, from what I understand, he and Rickover were not friends. And when Rickover's uh, ascension really starts to take hold, Bowen ends up getting pushed out. It is after that happens that he writes his autobiography in 1954. So the later parts of his autobiography uh, are not quite as happy, shall we say. Um, the high steam part in particular sounds much more, sounds like it's much more aggressively written, uh, especially reading it now. As if he has something to, that Bowen has something to prove that he was, a, you know, a valuable asset to the United States Navy, and he can't be overlooked, which, which he absolutely can't. Uh, however, well, it's the rare autobiography that isn't written with a, 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 a right. maybe a bitter retrospective in some ways. Uh, right. Here is the issue with this, however, because his autobiography is so unique in its uh, content and in the fact that it is written by a very, very talented engineer who was at the forefront of engineering change in the United States Navy at the time. Ever since then, it has been used as the authoritative primary source for the evolution of high steam in the U.S. Navy, which that may not sound like a catastrophic problem, except for the fact that we've just discussed how by the time the book was written, Bowen had something of a bone to pick with those who had forced him out. He's very sunny on high steam to a fault. And this is where I should double back to, to the conclusion that was reached by the general board when uh, after the debate of the uh, value of pursuing high steam without enough evidence that the existing designs that had just been manufactured were doing what they were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the back title in. of my dissertation to, to, yes. rock, to bring it all the way back. Too far on a whim to walk back on a hunch is what the general board of the Navy decides after weeks and weeks of talking about this which is not exactly what I would call a ringing endorsement of what Bowen had done at, up until that stage. The, the general board basically says, we don't have enough solid evidence 
that what the Bureau of Engineering has decided to do doesn't work. And because we don't have that, and because we've spent so much money and time getting what we have right now to function, getting it into ships and to function, trying to go back to what we had before would be extremely time-consuming and counterproductive. So until we have it's evidence, risky. what we've done is, yes. yes, absolutely, especially since 1937, things are not exactly peaceful all around the world anymore. Um, so the, the general board says <laughs> until that time where evidence may present itself that there is a problem with the new high steam system, we believe the, the Bureau of Engineering should not be interfered from. Did you have a sense reading the general board's investigation and judgment that it was it was being pushed by those operational and strategic requirements? Yes. Even Absolutely. as it was being pulled by the prospect of, of a new technological solution. Yeah. It's, there, it's a, a fascinating push pull mm -hmm. dynamic that I was I was really intrigued by the, uh, the presence of it. The, uh, the general board's conclusion is three pages long, and there is a, a clear tension throughout it uh, of the, some, you almost get the feeling that the entire board is sort of straining at the leash of this is not a problem we should be worrying about because they have bigger problems, as, as odd as that might sound. And what I mean by that is they're saying things really feel like they could hit the fan at any time. So we need to pick a course and stick to it. And because we don't have enough evidence to the contrary, we need to just keep what we have and try to amass more evidence so that we don't disrupt where we are trying to get it. It strikes rates. me as a very typical relationship between operators and engineers. Yes. Why can't you engineers just solve the problems that we need to have solved to give us the tools we need to apply exactly. ourselves to these bigger things? Why are exactly. we having to engage? Exactly. With the question of propulsion. The basic fallout from this is the general board's decision is delivered at the end of 1938. And I, I, I'm sorry, the most of the general board hearing, I believe, was actually, I think I've been saying 37. That was the Somers class development when it was all brewing. The hearing itself was September, October 1938. So the, the final uh, decision, the, the conclusion from the general board hearing, is uh, delivered at the end of October, or uh, the beginning of November. Soon after this, there begins a very rapid ramp up of the rate of warship production in the United States Navy. The, so the time for gathering evidence, quote unquote, to make sure the system worked only lasted a couple of months after the general board made its decision. And so the result of that is when you are, you as, say you are, we're the U.S. Navy, right? We're suddenly informed, hey, we're going to give you this much money. How many ships can you build before the end of next year? You're not going to go to the drawing board and say, okay, let's draw up an entirely new ship with an entirely new propulsion system that we have to you know, get, uh, come up with from total scratch, and it might have some new... No, you're going to say, well, if we rebuild the class we just built last year with basically the same stuff and a few minor improvements, I can turn out you know, 15 of these in the next 12 months mm -hmm. and uh, increasing by, by half uh, every year after. What that means is when you are suddenly coming at the Navy with the Two Ocean Navy Act, the Navy says, all right, well... Um, we're going to just build a bunch more of that exact same high steam system because it's what we got. And by that procedure, that's how this ended up being the propulsion system that drives the Navy in World War II. Basically, the system that was debated in the Somers, with only a few minor tweaks, is effectively what propels every destroyer in the U.S. Navy during World War II. And scaled up versions of that exact same system are what propels the vast majority of the larger warships in World War II. Um, and if the, the story Navy. stopped right there, 
it would still be a fascinating one, even if Bowen-esque. But that's not actually what your dissertation's all about. This concludes part one of the interview. Please join us next time for part two. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.